Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Hello, everybody. This is Redefining Society podcast with Marco Ciappelli on ITSP Magazine. And I am really excited to have a second episode with uh, Eileen Collins. And if you haven't catched the first episode, which is probably being published right before this one. So maybe you just go back one episode and either on YouTube, on our uh, podcast hosting platform, and you will see that uh, you can. there is another episode. Now, don't stop these. Listen to this. It's, not, it's connected, but it's not necessarily in the same chronological order. So enjoy this conversation, and then you can catch up on the first episode as well. So to get to the, uh, the point of this conversation, we're going to start with a guest, of course, Eileen Collins. Um, I hope you know who she is. She's been in space four times on the space shuttle, first woman to command actually a space shuttle on also on the return to flight after the unfortunate Columbia accident uh, at this point a few years ago. And uh, we, we got to talk about that on the first episode where we focus on the book that a lot of people want to to write, and she finally did, is out there. It's called Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, which was the focus of our first conversation. This one here, you got to stay tuned because we're going to talk about the future of space exploration and also the present. We're going to talk about automation, commercial flights, robotics, fly again, automation, meaning, you know, uh, maybe we don't need those pilot skills that Eileen had. Uh, back in the days, and she still has it. I'm sure she can still fly. So without further ado, Eileen, thank you so much for coming back. I'm, uh, I'm delighted that you gave me two, two precious hours of your time to go on a podcast with me. Oh, thanks, Marco. Uh, it's great being here. And I think, I think you pretty much did the introduction. I'm not sure what else <laughs> I can add to it. But I, I do want to say that um, I find people are so interested in 
space exploration, uh, not only what are we doing today, because we don't hear enough about it in the news, uh, but also what are the plans for tomorrow, for the future, and what's really possible. So I'm looking forward to our discussion. And I don't know, we're probably going to leave a lot of things untouched, because in my head, there is a lot of different angles that we can look at this from. But I, I think I think you said something that is very um, is very important to me. I think it could be the first step into all the things we're going to talk about. So space, you said, may not be in the news as it used to be. So we watched all this movie like, I don't know, Apollo 13, for example. And it was the moment I remember during the movie that despite the accident, before the accident, people were not really... Um, watching it as much as the the first Apollo mission, almost like it fade away the interest. Like, oh, we're going to the moon again. So let's let's jump from that to nowadays. Why, in your opinion, we're not talking enough of this in the in the news? Well, I think first of all, um, there's a lot more distractions today. You know, people have so many other things that they can do. Uh, mass media is everywhere, social media, um, you know, parents have their kids in sports and you want to keep your kids busy. You want to keep your kids away from drugs. And I'm a parent myself and I know I kept my kids super busy so they would be, I mean, you want to give them some downtime too. But I remember back when I was a kid, I had a lot of time to kill. I had a lot of free time. I'd go to the library and I would read books and I was fascinated with space. And you know, I think uh, back in the 1960s, it was something that was so new and so different. It was a whole new mode of travel, you know, putting a astronaut on a rocket and shooting them up into space. And the other thing back in those days was the space race with the Soviet Union. And today we're not really in a space race. I mean, some say that we will eventually be in one with China. But uh, right now, it's really international cooperation. And there, I can tell you firsthand, there's still many, many people that follow space on a daily basis. And it, it's almost like a club, you know, a, a, this great big giant club of people that read books on space. You know, they love to uh, you know, get NASA's uh, everyday email. They're on the NASA app, which, by the way, NASA has a great app. Um, it wins awards. So don't just listen to me, but... <laughs> I'll listen to the award presenters in uh, NASA, in my opinion, does a really great job uh, reaching out to school kids and teachers and, and whatnot. But, but to really answer your question, I think space travel has become uh, more common. And, you know, having said that, the fact that people are still interested uh, back, uh, you know, just a little over a year ago when Blue Origin launched uh, their first uh, rocket. Into, it was called the New Shepard. And they launched that with Jeff Bezos on board, who's the CEO of the company. He put his life at stake launching in that rocket. And it, he wanted to put uh, faith in it that it was safe. So he went up himself with a family member and uh, several high profile people have flown in that little blue origin uh, New Shepard rocket since then. And that was really, uh, that was covered very heavily in the news. William Shatner flew, um, Michael Strahan flew, and there's been, I can't even tell you how many flights now, there's been quite a few of them. Well, they're not in the news anymore. The first two and three and the fourth were all in the news, but now it's become routine. 
And one last thing on that question is um, many years ago, I asked, back when I was an active astronaut, I asked a high profile person at NBC News, why do you not cover space the way I think, you know, I think you should uh, more often because people want to hear about it. And he answered me, news is change. And if spaceflight becomes routine, we're just not going to cover it as much. We cover when things change. So, you know, first flight, first, second flight, uh, something new. Hate to say it, but if there's an accident, you know, we're going to be all over that. And I've had a news person tell me the only reason they send anybody down to Florida for the launch anymore is in case there's an accident. We want to have somebody there. So, you know, that that's kind of sad that when you hear things like that, but that's reality. So, you know, I just realized I'm not going to change the news business, but I think I need to work uh, with them and try my best to, you know, bring the story of spaceflight uh, to people everywhere. Well, being uh, news and mass media, one of my interests and background, I could go over and over on that one, but I, I'm just going to give my personal opinion, which is there, it's too much um, tragedy based lately or shocking, right? But it's not about culture as much. Like you have to find your own niche when you want to know something. So you mentioned the app. Thankfully, there's so many websites about space if you follow social media account on Instagram and I'm one of those I you know I get the NASA news so <laughs> I'm uh, I'm part of that club um so let, let's talk about one thing that we kind of mentioned last time when we finished uh, the conversation the first one that we recorded uh the question and you kind of hint about that like where is space right it's because we have Blue Origin. Uh, we, we didn't mention Branson from uh, Virgin Intergalactic was the same here. It was kind of a competition between Branson and and uh, and the Blue Origin Bezos going up. So that was another reason for the news, I guess. And then there was the controversy of did they really reach space? Did they pass the limit that you consider as space? And then, of course, you got where this International Space Station is, where you used to go with it with the space shuttle, and then, then you go to the moon, you go to Mars. So help us to have a picture of space. And I know it's a big picture, but <laughs> at least the one close to us. So I think this is an important question. Um, space is defined in two different ways. <clears throat> Back in the 1950s, the Air Force defined space as 50 miles, <clears throat> excuse me, 50 miles above the surface of the Earth. Whether statute, nautical, I mean, it really doesn't matter. They're pretty close. And the Air Force picked 50 miles really as a kind of a round number. Um, so think about this, 50 miles. And I like to uh, tell people, because I live in Texas, if I could drive uh, my car from San Antonio to Austin, that, you know, that would take maybe 50 minutes to, for me to do that. It, if I'm driving 60 miles an hour, okay, Take that distance from San Antonio to Austin and go up with it. That's not very high. And you can get there in this Blue Origin New Shepard rocket. You can get there in 10 or 12 minutes. I'm sorry, you can get there in half the time. of You, you, you can get there in four to five minutes because the entire flight up and down is about 10 to 12 minutes. So, you know, because the rocket's going much faster than a car. So that so space is actually very close. Now, why did the Air Force pick 50 miles? Well, they were flying the X-15 and the pilots had to wear a pressure suit. Um, 
So let me give your uh, listeners an idea there. A person, a hiker can breathe up to about two and a half miles, three miles before the hiker needs supplemental oxygen. So three miles would be about 18,000 feet. You know, you're going to start getting hypoxic. You need to take oxygen with you. Airplanes fly, commercial airplanes fly at about six or seven miles. And of course, if there's an emergency, you have supplemental oxygen that will come down. And, and then space is 50 miles. So, so that kind of gives you perspective compared to airplanes. Now, one other thing, the international community defines space with something called the von Karman line, mm. which is 100 kilometers. And that translates to 62 miles. So that's where, to answer your question, there might be some confusion. So some people say, oh, you have to go to 62 miles to really be in space. But yet years ago, the Air Force defined 50 miles as space. So if your Blue Origin flight goes up to, you know, 59 miles, you know, did it, did it reach space defined by international standards? As far as I'm concerned, it reached space. I mean, I, I personally would say if 50 miles, um, the Air Force still allows pilots to put astronaut logo on their flight wings if they go over 50 miles. Now, where's the space station? Okay, here's where the big difference is. So these Blue Origin flights go up and they come right down. They launch and they land very close to where the launch site is. They do not go around Earth. They're only 10 minute flights. When you go to orbit, you actually circle the Earth. And to get to orbit, you need to be pretty much over 100 miles. And that is something that SpaceX is doing, is a, is a private company. They're the only private company right now that has sent people to Earth orbit. And why is orbital flight different from suborbital? Okay, so the suborbital is the up, down, land, you know, 10 minute flight, land where close to where you take off. The orbital flight is where you go around Earth. The big difference there is you must have a heat shield on your spacecraft. Because when you go to orbit, now you're circling the Earth, you're going to be going 18,500 miles an hour. You have a lot of energy, a lot of speed, uh, a lot of altitude. You know, these orbital flights, I say 100 miles or, or more, they normally go to two to 300 miles. Our space station is at about 250 miles. So to come back from that very high speed circling the Earth, you're going to heat up to 2,000, 3,000 degrees on your uh, exterior of your spacecraft. So you must have a heat shield. And the uh, space shuttle had tiles. Um, we had reinforced carbon-carbon, which was a material that could withstand heat. And we, we got very, very hot and we would glow. There was this plasma would develop around the shuttle. And we actually had an accident with the shuttle because there was uh, uh, the Columbia back in 2003 because they had a hole in their heat shield that they didn't know about. So, so that's orbital flight. Now, how, how long, as I mentioned, suborbital 10 minutes to get to orbit. Frankly, it's, it's about uh, 10 minutes to get to orbit, but once you're in orbit, it would be at least 90 minutes to circle the earth. Now let's talk about the moon. The moon is what I would call deep space. Although the moon is orbiting the earth, for us to get there, we need to escape um, earth's uh, gravity field uh, for the most part. It takes three days to get to the moon, you know, whereas you can get to the space station in, you know, pretty much less than a day. It takes three days to get to the moon. To go to Mars, it takes 
at least six months. If, if Mars and Earth are on the same side of the sun, six months. But if Mars and Earth are on opposite sides of the sun, it's a two-year flight. So, so that's why I tell people, where is space? So I think of it three ways, suborbital, orbital, and deep space. And, and I explain the differences there. And, and I think uh, when people say uh, space, it, it means like one thing to most people. But to me, I think of all these subsets of space, you know, you know, and then there's, you know, you can go even beyond our solar system where our uh, telescopes are look outside of our solar system, other places in the Milky Way galaxy, looking at other galaxies. And the telescopes, especially the James Webb Space Telescope, which has been up there now for a little over a year, um, that's looking you know, farther into space than we ever have before, but it's also looking farther back in time. And maybe someday we'll be able to travel uh, farther than the moon and Mars and outside of the solar system. But that's a topic for, for later discussion. Yeah, it is. It is a topic for later discussion, but also I, I think we can talk about that in certain aspect. Because you know, I when I when I look at the you know, the picture of the pale blue dot uh, from Carl Sagan when he called it that, it was taken, I believe, while as the Voyager was was leaving pretty much the solar system, and it give you a perspective. But then now, when you go on social media, sometimes they give you the reference of, okay, here's the planet, here's the planet in comparison with this, this, and that. And then you go and you look into, okay, we're just on the arm of the Milky Way, which is a huge galaxy, which is in a big cluster of galaxy, which is like, okay, what? and your mind just explodes. So <laughs> I think that looking at the way you put it, it's, it's something that is more... Um, we can refer and, and kind of grasp the concept, but I think it's very relevant because it makes me think about also what you mentioned at the beginning about automation and what I said about the fact that do we even need at this point people that know how to pilot? Because nobody is really piloting the SpaceX, right? I mean, all the, correct me if I'm wrong, but all the approach to connect with the um, um, International Space Station, I don't think anybody touched anything anymore. While well, you had to literally do the flip, the belly, and all the, the procedure to, to get there. So who is going to space now, apart from those that are doing research, those that are doing, um, I don't know, they pay just to, <laughs> to have the experience, I guess. But how do you see the the near future of the quality and I don't want to diminish anyone, but I mean, you had to go through so many, so many training just, just to get even into the NASA program. Um, now since you pay, you go to space. So I don't want to be polemic here, but your perspective on this and, and, and what it means really is that are we welcoming the commercial space flight and the automation? Yes, I would say definitely. I personally am welcoming, you know, the two questions there, but I personally am wel welcoming the people that are not professional NASA astronauts. It is very important for our country and frankly for the world to have more and more people of different backgrounds, uh, you know, different, you know, whether they're professional or one-time flyers 
or whatever reason they're going up there, uh, to have more of these people fly. Because the more flights that we have, the safer it will get and the less expensive it will get. And the market of space travel will open up to more and more people. So I say, I use the word scale, but we need to get space flight to go to scale like the airline industry has and have more and more people flying and having that experience for so many different reasons. You know, even uh, giving people an appreciation of planet Earth, because once you go up there and you, you look back at the Earth, you think, wow, the atmosphere is really thin. There's that tiny little thin atmosphere I mentioned earlier, two to three miles of breathable air protecting us from micrometeorites and uh, the sun's solar radiation, cosmic background radiation, uh, you know, giving us air to breathe. And, you know, that tiny little atmosphere is protecting us. And then you look the other direction and you see nothing but uh, black space. You know, you can't really see anything other than the tiny little pinpoint stars. Uh, you start really appreciating the earth more. I think more and more people need to have this opportunity. So I'm very, very excited about, I want to say commercial space flight or a private space flight or tourism. It's not all just one thing. There's many, many different categories. So you had the question on automation, which I want to address. Back in the shuttle days, uh, when I you know, flew the space shuttle, it, it was really you know, three things. The shuttle was a rocket going up, it was a satellite in orbit, and it was an airplane or a glider coming home. There were 135 space shuttle flights, uh, if you include the two accidents. But if you uh, don't include the two accidents, every one of those flights that came back to Earth was landed by the commander, by hand, like a traditional airplane. We tried to do auto land um, twice. I won't go into the details there, but it didn't both times... Uh, one time the commander actually clicked off the autopilot, you know, at a couple thousand feet because he didn't like what it was doing. And the other time the commander canceled the planned auto land because he wasn't comfortable with uh, the way it was, uh, the way it was going. He didn't have confidence in the system. So mm -hmm. the technology back then was just not as good. Well, we used radar altimeter to determine what our altitude was over the ground. Well, now we have GPS and we have much uh, better, uh, hardware and software without going into the details, the systems are much better. And we're not landing anymore. The new spacecraft that we're flying splashes down in the ocean or will uh, come down under parachutes on land. So uh, you really don't need a pilot to land those spacecraft. I mean, you still need pilots to land airplanes, but that is not a skill that's needed in, in the the aircraft, excuse me, the spacecraft that we have right now <clears throat> that are coming back from space. So uh, the other thing about the space shuttle, um, it, it was flown to orbit every single flight under autopilot, computer control. The commander or pilot was able to take over manually if they saw something that was not, uh, they were not comfortable with or the trajectory was not going where it was supposed to be, but every flight to orbit was, uh, they were all flown on the autopilot. A pilot cannot hit the window of the variables that you need to hit if you are going to rejoin to the space station. It is a very, very small window in XYZ, which is position, and then what we call X.Y.Z, dot dot, which is your 
um, velocity and your acceleration in each one of those different directions. And it's a very, very difficult window to hit. So you want the autopilot to fly it. Um, a pilot would probably use too much gas and you could even run out of gas. So, but on orbit, th the rendezvous in the shuttle were all flown by hand. Well, the software today is so much better that it can be fully automated. So I've addressed the launch, the landing, and the on-orbit flying. So GPS, which is a global positioning system which gives our navigation and the improvements in software and hardware allow us to fly the entire flights now on autopilot automatically. But you still want the professional astronaut there to you know, maybe intervene if something is going awry and it's not going where it should go. And those things still happen. Uh, the Russians have been doing this for decades and occasionally the cosmonauts will have to take over manually and fly the, for example, the docking uh, by, the, by hand. So uh, is this good or is this bad? You know, I don't, I, I don't wanna say it's good or bad one way or the other because there's so many different things to, to look at. You know, for example, the autopilot will use less gas and the, uh, the autopilot will free up the crew uh, to do uh, other tasks and also less training time. Also allows people who are not professional pilots to be in the position of commander and what we used to call the pilot seat. It's not really a, a pilot seat anymore if the person is not a pilot, but maybe we need to call it something else. So I'd say, you know, in the long run, it's, it, I would have to say, uh, this is important that it's the way that things go and it will allow us to fly more people in space with less training and less gas. So I think that's the answer to the auto part. Now, when we start going farther and farther into deep space, let's, let's take Mars, for example, because it may be another 10 years before people go to Mars. Do we really want to have somebody who's constantly flying? And if it takes you six months to get there, no, I mean, you need, there's other things that you need to do. The crew needs to stay busy. They can do experiments. I mean, there's so many different things that can be done. And then every once in a while, you go in and you check the software, you check the, uh, the flight control systems and your life support systems to make sure that everything is operating the way it should be. And then you can start talking about artificial intelligence. Do you want the spacecraft to be making decisions for you? Um, you know, that's where I'm going to maybe put up a little bit of a stop sign. You know, I think because it's very important to the astronauts that we stay busy and that we stay in control of our spacecraft, you don't want to just be a blob, you know, for six months. You want to have some kind of control over your spacecraft. So I, I'm not like a big fan of artificial intelligence for, you know, maybe six month or even two year flights. Now, you can start looking maybe a hundred years into the future. If at some point we find a way to travel to another solar system and you wanna put the astronaut bodies into some kind of uh, hibernation mode, there's different words for it, but I'll call it hibernation. Mm -hmm. Then you are gonna to have to have some type of artificial intelligence that is in control of the spacecraft that has been thoroughly tested and, and can be trusted. And in that case, the, the, these future astronauts are really putting their lives um, you know, in, in the trust of the software. Um, 
planet Earth isn't going to be able to control it because if a signal from Earth to a spacecraft travels at the speed of light, I mean, it's going to, it may, I mean, it's going to take a long time for a signal to reach you. So you're going to have to have some type of artificial intelligence controlling the spacecraft for these extremely futuristic flights. So many different things to think about. Um, I am not opposed to any of these things, but I'm following it with fascination. And I think we need to be ethical. We need to be safe. Um, we need to always keep in mind the lives of the astronauts, whether they're you know in some hibernation mode or if they're awake. Um, there's mental health considerations also, which is a different subject. We can talk about that if you'd like. Um, but you know, being cooped up in a spacecraft where you can't walk, you can't go out and get sunshine, uh, like you know, take a hike. <laughs> um, you only have the same couple of humans around you all the time. I mean, that, that can be a very interesting uh, human nature study. And these studies are going on They're in the area of psychology. Uh, but, uh, but I won't get into that now. So uh, yeah, I, I kind of want to, I want to get into that, but I think we should do it another time because we're going to go off with that. Cause I'm going into the sci-fi realm, which I know last time, and I'm going to make again a reference, when you said when you were young, you, you used to read all the sci-fi, and then now you're actually into reading about things about history and, and kind of, I'm doing both, but because we can learn and, you know, you can make many references about what you said from a sociological and psychological perspective and what people would experience when they were traveling, exploring the ocean back in the 1700 or the 1500 and not having anything that you could do. If something goes wrong, goes wrong. End of story. No, <laughs> no way to save, uh, to send a rescue mission or, or put the autopilot on those boats. So in a way, I think, I think if you look into what the psychology of the human is, but then there is also, and you mentioned that in the book too, like, and we know when you go to space, your body gets affected by the, the lack of gravity. So as you want to keep your mind in, uh, in shape, you, you, we still don't really know, I think, to the 100% what happened to the body when you stay for a longer period of time. I mean, there's been people in, on the space station for hundreds of days, I think, cumulative, um, but we still don't know. So if you're going to go in the outer space, first of all, there is a limit on our age, right? And second thing, unless we can preserve ourselves, I think that's the big issue on, on actually getting out there. So that may bring to two different things to add to the to the many questions. One is, why does it take so long to go where we're going? I mean, do we need some super leap into the propulsion system or the way we travel? Do we need to go through wormholes and you know and and who knows what to make the travel faster? And do we need to find an alternative to explore by not only AI piloting, but also robotics that are our avatar in space. I'm going sci-fi, so if you want to go with me, let, let's do this. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I think we're certainly going to, you know, you talk about a, a avatar, artificial intelligence, and back in the old days, science fiction said, you know, the hologram, or you can mm -hmm. go into the hollow room where you're actually, you know, you're in a big computer 
it's physical space, but you but the computer has control of what you're seeing and hearing, and you can have those experiences. <clears throat> and you know, I think all of that is great. Also, as long as we are careful about how we use it, and you know, we realize what what we're actually doing, and we <laughs> we always as humans know when it's reality and when it's not reality. We need to make sure that we um, are always capable of making that distinction in our mind. And, you know, your question on propulsion is really interesting. Right now, chemical propulsion is how we fly in space. So to get off planet Earth, to, to get away from the gravity field <clears throat> here, on, you know, which actually decreases as, as you go up, um, you need a lot of thrust to get off off the surface. So for example, in the space shuttle program, we had about seven and a half million pounds of thrust, which lifted about six and a half million pounds of weight of the space shuttle. So your thrust to weight ratio, I mean, you have to have more thrust than you do weight. So on the shuttle, we, uh, the way we initially got off the ground was uh, uh, with, the, with the solid rocket boosters. So first of all, we would light our main engines, which were very burned, very clean. They were liquid. They were, uh, you have to have a fuel and an oxidizer. So our fuel was hydrogen, you know, cryogenic hydrogen. And our, our oxidizer uh, was cryogenic oxygen. So to burn a liquid engine, you need fuel and you need oxygen. You know, an airplane gets their oxygen from the atmosphere. But a rocket, since it's going into space, has to carry its own oxygen with it. So those main engines that we had burned for eight and a half minutes but it wasn't good enough to get us off the initial uh, pull of gravity. So we had those white rockets on the side. Uh, those were solid rocket boosters. And there was some kind of ammonium perchlorate. This, there's a lot of chemicals in these solid rocket motors. And they uh, burnt for two minutes and they were uh, used up their fuel. They dropped in the ocean, they were reused. Um, we still uh, use solid rocket motors on uh, many launch vehicles. I think today there's a lot of uh, liquid uh, uh, engines that are getting us out of uh, planet Earth and there's different kinds of fuel. You don't have to use, uh, you don't have to use uh, hydrogen, but uh, I think we'll be using chemical propulsion in the near future to get off of the surface of the Earth. Now, what about traveling through space? That's different. You need a different kind of engine for that. In the space shuttle, to, once we were in orbit, now we're in space, there's no air. So we used uh, something called Ohm's engines. Uh, they had monomethyl hydrazine for fuel, oxygen tetroxide for uh, the oxidizer. They were hypergolic fuels. I don't want to get too technical here, but a hypergolic fuel is when the, the uh, hydrogen or when the fuel and the oxygen come together, they don't need ignition. They just spontaneously ignite. Those engines were extremely reliable. I can't even think of a time where we had a major failure with those. That was also the type of oxygen, I'm sorry, the type of engine that was used when the astronauts were on the moon. They lifted off. I mean, a lot of people thought, what if they're stuck up there? What if their engines don't light? They're trying to come back to earth. Well, they had engines similar uh, to that that brought them back home. But again, that's chemical propulsion. So, and there's different kinds, as I've mentioned. So we want to travel in space and we don't want to carry all of this chemical and oxidizer with us. So there's research going on into nuclear propulsion. Um, there's nuclear fission, there's nuclear fusion. It can be used for propulsion, like moving in 
a spacecraft or it can be used for power like giving you electricity. And there's, I'm gonna tell you, there's a lot of research going on and a lot of it is very promising. Another type is solar propulsion. Um, now solar, by the way, is used for power. It's used for electricity on board the space station. We have solar arrays, you know, the space station is completely, all of its electric power comes from the sun on the space station. But the sun maybe can be used for uh, solar sailing and it would be much, much slower, but it would be very clean and it would be very reliable. Uh, but once you get away from the sun, you got problems. So that's not really going to work for inter, I want to say, you know, interplanetary uh, type uh, travel far away from a sun. But I think that the nuclear propulsion is, is where uh, it's going to be at. Now, how fast can you go? Well, theoretically, you can travel up to the speed of light. Uh, when you start getting close to the speed of light, weird things start happening uh, to the, your your sense of time and your sense of mass. And I'm not a physicist, so I don't want to go into that. But let's say theoretically you could travel at the speed of light. And as I mentioned before, the closest sun to us is over four light years. So it would take you four years to get there if you could travel at the speed of light, which we can't. So even if we could approach that, uh, it's still going to be you know, a massive amount of a person's lifetime. So that's where you're going to be sending, uh, you know, some type of, you'd call them robots, but you're going to send some type of automation and you can tap into that somehow uh, visually and, you know, using some kind of new technology where you can participate but not actually having your body there. And <clears throat> these are all like sci-fi kind of concepts right now, but I find it fascinating and I like to talk to young people about it and use your imagination, you know, become an engineer, become a scientist and really try to explore what are the possibilities for the future. Um, there will be a breakthrough at some point, and we're gonna figure out how to get to some of these stars in our galaxy uh, much faster, not using these uh, primitive types of transportation that are will really probably work in the short term for us and in the long term for shorter distances. But if we want to go farther and faster, we're going to have to develop some new concept. And I, I, I can't tell you what that is, but I can tell you that I like to talk about it and try to get uh, other people thinking about it. And maybe somebody smarter than me will someday, you know, figure out, like, here, here's another example. No one's figured out how to do artificial gravity it's just, I mean, you can go in a space station and spin it like a centrifuge and create artificial gravity that way. Um, but no one's actually figured out how to do it. Like you would say, you know, maybe in some of these movies, like uh, like Star Trek or Star Wars, where they're out in space and they're all walking around like they're, like they have one G. <laughs> and you know, that's not realistic, but maybe somebody could invent that. And the other thing is, you know, people ask me about the zero gravity room on the, where's NASA's zero gravity room? Is it at Johnson Space Center? I'm like, no, no one's figured out how to do that. You know, that's the other side of it. Um, we can go up in an airplane and, and, and do what mm -hmm. we call parabolas. And, and, you know, for 20 seconds, you can get zero gravity while the airplane dives. But we haven't figured out how to do zero gravity on the surface of the Earth. <clears throat> people think we have, you know, they want to go in the zero gravity room. So all of these things, all of these things I've mentioned are very, very futuristic, um, 
probably not possible in my lifetime, but I think that uh, we need to keep setting these seeds of curiosity in our young people and they can continue to pass that on to, you know, their children and their next generation. And, you know, someday I believe that humans will figure out how to get, how to really travel into, into deep space. Cool. I know. I feel like I just read a book here and my mind is going, you know, in reference to, to famous, um, movies and tv series and books a lot of authors come to mind and you know i i'm i'm with you i mean i'm sure we'll figure out all of this i mean our future as a race depends on it anyway so there there is that so let, let's go back for the last few minutes to what what is possible and what is more of the near future so i'd love to hear about the idea of we're going back to the moon Right, we, there's been the first Artemis, completely unmanned. Snoopy was there, so I was excited about that. Uh, and then we're going to do another one, which is going to be more of a, a test, a, a much test uh, landing, I guess. And then the third one, where actually people are going to go there. And then there is the whole idea of what, what are we going to do there? And then is the next step Mars? Why do we want to go to Mars? And why do we go to Mars? So I'm sure, and I try to ask question that I think the audience may have right now is the famous question, why? Why are we going to space? Why are we going to explore? But maybe more immediately, why are, what are the reasons why we're going to the moon, we're going to Mars, and then who knows where from, from where? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. It, it, yes, it is definitely important. And yes, the United States will do this. <clears throat> I think it's important that the United States uh, is a leader and that we bring in uh, the international community. <clears throat> but, you know, why are we going? I mean, this question goes all the way back to the 1960s when the United States started uh, the Mercury Gemini Apollo program. Back then, there were a lot of questions. Why are we doing this? There's a war in Vietnam. There's civil rights protests going on, you know, the, we had a president assassinate Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, all this stuff, assassinations. And there were so many problems, but the United States, NASA, in parallel with all of these unrest of the 60s, campus protests, and we were launching people into space. And the question was constantly asked, why are we doing that? Why are we spending money in space? We're wasting it. Well, here's, here's the answer to it. First of all, the money is not being spent in space because there's no stores, there's no banks up there. I mean, all the money was spent on earth and it, it had to do with research, keeping people employed, keeping people motivated, getting kids interested, kids in school interested in studying math, science, engineering. It gave us hope for the future. As humans, it gave us something that we could be happy about and we could cling to and, you know, get away from, I mean, it's important that we stop the war in, in Vietnam, but meanwhile, we can see where success is happening and we can see that humans can do it. So I think it, I think it gave us this subjective, uh, and you can't really measure it, but it gave, just interesting story. In 1968, when Apollo, I think it was Apollo 8, first humans to circle the moon. They didn't land, but they circled the moon and Frank Borman was the commander. And they were able to put their thumb out 
and the whole earth disappeared behind their thumb while they were circling the moon. That's how far away they were. And they read from Genesis, they read from the Bible, Genesis, and the Capcom in Mission Control said to them, thank you, Apollo 8, you saved 1968. And that was Christmas Eve, December 24th of 1968. So that's just one example. There's, there's many others about how, you know, just this, the human spirit of exploration and discovery so, so that I would say is reason number one. And then you could get into more concrete things like, you know, why do we build a space station? Well, frankly, we built it because we want to understand the human body, how it can survive for long periods of time in zero gravity or low gravity fields so we can spend more time on the moon and Mars. <clears throat> but while we're up there, you know, so the space station, which, by the way, has been up there since the year 2000. So it's been over 22 years. Um doing research on the human body and we're learning so much about ourselves. But on the other hand, the technology that we are uh, developing is helping us overall. So <clears throat> the space station is completely powered by solar. Um, we actually give some of our power to the Russians on the Russian side of their space station is part of our, our contracts we have with them. And uh, we are studying, uh, I want to say, without using technical terms, we're recycling the air, the air revitalization, but <clears throat> we're learning how to take carbon dioxide out of the air. And it's on a very small scale, but humans breathe out carbon dioxide. And we have many different ways to take the carbon dioxide and, and convert it back to oxygen. It, the systems are not very reliable. They tend to break down, but we're trying to develop them uh, to make them uh, more reliable so we can use them on the moon and Mars, where if it breaks down over there, you can't, you know, just order a part from Earth. You, you want them to be reliable. And the other thing is we're recycling the water up there. And NASA uh, has gotten their water recycling to, they're reclaiming like 97% of the water um, through humidity and through uh, wastewater. So, so there's the tech, technology reason. And then I'll only give you one more, there's so many, but we're looking back at the earth from a different perspective. Instead of just seeing it from the surface or from an airplane, we're seeing it from a distance. And we can take imagery, and again, it can be taken with satellites, but yet when a human looks out the window, see most of our satellites are look nadir, they look straight down. But an astronaut will look out at an oblique angle. Maybe uh, you can look out at the horizon and say, oh, I see something over there that I'm going to photograph it and send it down to the scientists. And, you know, just using, you know, maybe the human filter that you have in your mind. I, I know this doesn't look right. Let's, let's ask, let's send it down to our uh, folks on the ground. So those are just a couple of reasons of why we're going. Now you can use maybe a reason that people would argue with is if we don't do it, the Chinese will do it. I'm telling you, they will do it. Uh, the Chin Chinese right now have a rover on Mars. Um, the Chinese, have uh, they have a space station. Um, our Congress does not allow us to work with China. Uh, the, Cong the United States Congress does not allow NASA to cooperate with China in space, although we do cooperate with all the other countries, uh, Russia, Europeans, and the Japanese. So China has said, we're going to go to the South Pole of the Moon, which is actually the goal of the United States, and we're going to build space stations there. 
And so we're kind of in a little bit of a space race with them. Um, right now we are ahead, obviously. Um, you just look at what we've done, but the Chinese are catching up very fast. Um, it kind of breaks my heart to think that there would be a um, this kind of space race competition with another country. I believe, you know, ideologically we should be working together, but the reality is that's not, <laughs> um, that's probably too idealistic because uh, the Chinese have, uh, I think, different intentions than us in the long run. And uh, we're, I would probably have to say we're probably in a, in a mild space race with China right now that will only escalate. So we need to keep doing these things. And then, of course, international cooperation. You know, we, um, we're working with uh, the Europeans, with Japan. We're still working with Russia, even though there's sanctions due to the war in Ukraine. Uh, it, this has been through the State Department, and uh, we're, we're still launching uh, Russian cosmonauts um, out of Florida on our SpaceX uh, partners uh, spacecraft. And American astronauts are still launching on the Soyuz out of Kazakhstan. And the reason we're doing this is we want to make sure that our space station will always have at least one Russian and one American on board because of the way we're trained to operate the systems. So it, it really, our space program really depends on cooperating uh, with the Russians. So anyway, I'm talking about a lot of different things here, but I think <clears throat> when we started working with the Russians back in, in the 1990s, it has really helped uh, both of our countries, um, at least in the short term. And uh, maybe we'll see what happens in the long in the long term. But it's not looking good there. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> where my uh, my idealistic view, uh, you know, is going to wrap this entire thing. Of like, I think about the overview effect. I think about the fact that even despite the the cold war and the you know and the race to space back in the in the 50s the 60s and you know i've read book about that very fascinating from you know sputnik to yuri gagarin and then shepherd and and all of that i mean it's beautiful because again you look at the history of that and you shake your head because you know you, you guys got on the mirror mirror was the beginning of the space station right and so i'm hoping that there's not going to be a a colonization with the flags on the moon uh, and it's just symbolic eventually because it's for all humankind and and so will be in the interest of everyone i mean the planet is this the overview effect i, I encourage everybody to learn about that you, you mentioned that i think that's exactly the point you, and we need to do it together uh, i don't think a country alone is going to be i don't know i, I don't I don't think it's going to be able to to establish colonies on Mars unless we all are part of that. And and again, I'm I'm being more from a societal perspective. I would like to add something to that. Yeah, the please. only reason we have a space station is because of the international cooperation. But in 1995, when Congress voted on the space station, the one we've had up there for 22 years, the ISS International Space Station, it passed Congress by one vote. Wow. One, I didn't know that. And yeah, and it would have, but you know, many of these uh, congressmen that uh, voted for it were like, well, it's so expensive, da da da, but we've promised our international partners, so we don't want to break that promise. And then the second one is after the Columbia accident in 2003, 
Many people wanted to shut down the shuttle program because we mm -hmm. killed your crews. Why should we keep flying this dangerous machine? The reason we kept flying the shuttle was we had international commitments to finish building the space station. And we didn't want to let down our international partners. We wanted to be a reliable partner. So just I just wanted to add that to what you were saying. It's it's so true that, you know, could the United States do all of spaceflight alone? Yes, it, it would be possible, but it's not realistic. You know, to get the funding and to really, uh, I want to say, make sure that the program go all the way to the end, we have to do it internationally. And then having been a an international participant myself, having our uh, astronauts from other countries has just been wonderful in what we've learned from mm -hmm. each other and how it's really, um, I think, helped me grow to be a better astronaut by learning about other countries and the way they do things and having the friendships. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, just kind yeah. of a nice ice cream cake. And, and you have beautiful stories on, on your book about spending time, even having a a drink in, in space <laughs> with with everyone else. I know you, you you learn some of the language so you could cooperate and collaborate. You get went to train there. So I'm saying all of this because this was a beautiful conversation. I, I I think we just touch on certain things that we could have an entire episode about. But in the end, I want to wrap it with again uh, reference to to your book uh, through the glass ceiling to the stars, where is your biography, but also I think you understand. Here it is on the video. You can see it. And there'll be a link uh, to that book and to learn. Really, I felt like Eileen, Eileen, I, I already kind of knew you before we got together because I, I did read the book. <laughs> but, but you know, as somebody said, they, they can hear your voice. I couldn't actually say that before. But now after a couple of hours that we spent together, I, I agree. I think that book is is said with your with your voice and uh, and it's beautiful. And what to say? Uh, I don't know. I have an app that I'm in LA in Los Angeles, and when the the International Space Station fly by, you got five minutes to look at this bright light if it's not cloudy. And I don't know. It's not an overview effect. I'm just here on Earth. But to to know that there is people there and the history of those like you that build it and the people there working together in cooperation for me it is it is a, a light is a bright light honestly of the show the unity and what we can do all together instead of you know collaborating way, and cooperating sign up, it's called spot the station you can sign up to get emails or text messages just got to put the city where you live and it'll tell you when it's going overhead so you can see it and it's really cool. It's just a bright star that goes really fast. It's yep. faster than an airplane and, and brighter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's beautiful. So again, we are 53 minutes. I am so honored that you took the time to spend it with me. I hope you will come back whenever you have something to say. I know that you're part of many initiatives for STEM and, 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 and bringing the education and knowledge all over the places. I know you're going to visit schools, you're talking to young kids. And so um, very, very excited for, for all other people that are going to space and then they're gonna come back and, and bring the message that, you, that you're bringing is really important. So Eileen, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Marco. Great talking right. with you. Thank you. 
Same here and for everybody else, subscribe to the channel, Redefining Society podcast, uh, catch, uh, catch up on all the links that will be for the book for Eileen and, uh, and um, just stay tuned for the next episode. I don't know what we're going to talk about, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. Thank you very much. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.